Welcome to WMTMW, the podcast where we ask members of the Bucknell community to ponder the question, what matters to me and why? My name is Kurt Nelson, Director of Religious and Spiritual Life in my fourth semester at Bucknell, um, and I've been working on what matters to me and why for over a decade now. We're trying our best to turn it into a podcast in this pandemic season so that we can keep connecting around the things that matter most to us. Alongside me are my co-hosts and producers, Spandan Marasini and Jack Rose. Hey everyone, this is Spandan. So I've worked in radio production and podcasting, and I'm super excited to kick off WMTMW with this episode. Hi, I'm Jack Rose. I'm a junior studying film and media. I'm also a student athlete, and I'm also looking forward to the conversations that we're going to be having here. This week, we are talking with Andrew Stuhl, Associate Professor of Environmental Studies here at Bucknell, an organizer with the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement, a father, and we'll be talking about love and truth and forgiveness and climate change and so many other things. So without further ado, let's begin. My name is Andrew Stuhl, and I'm an Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and Sciences at Bucknell University, and I'm a Libra. <laughs> Excellent. Father of two and surviving the season so far, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I are raising two little ones, Everett, who's eight, and Whitley, who's five. And yeah, we have a big commitment this winter to be outside every day. So it's just another season. I like it. I like it. Um, so you want to start just by answering the question, what matters to you and why? So I think it's like a pretty straightforward answer at the top of it. I mean, living a life of purpose is what matters to me. And that's different from being happy. I think people, if you would answer what matters to me is being happy, they immediately go to material wealth, success, you know, job advancement. But that actually doesn't really matter to me when I think really, really think about this question. And I'm sure that that's what you're going to find as you talk to more people and what you've already heard with this series of lectures. So what's life of purpose? Like, let's go a little bit deeper on that. And there's obviously so many people who have thought about this and written about this and shared wisdom on living a life of purpose. But for me, it's the commitment and service of some universal love or some universal truth. So for Andrew Stuhl, that's commitment to my wife, Ariana, to my family, to the project of education, to this one complex but fragile planet that we share, and to striving so that everyone feels they have been treated with dignity and that they've been treated with value and that we have uh, justice. So that's the short answer, but I can go further. (laughs) (laughs) Short short and rich, for sure. I appreciate that. So yeah, going back to some of what you said, Andrew, uh, thank you for that. So talk a little bit more about how you see the weaving of sort of the day-to-day or the family life maybe and the the kind of universal stuff. Um, So you said some things that seemed you know, workable in, in this moment and some that, uh, you know, are bold, right? Every, every human treated with dignity, uh, is a big, a big deal, right? Yeah. I mean, the word love, I think is really, really important here. And that matters to me a great deal. Feeling that, sharing that, 
you know, expressing that to people I really care about and meaning that. And honestly, this is, I'm not a perfect person. This is a constant struggle. And I feel like that's actually where the meaning and what matters comes from is the inner drama I have with myself and my own journey as I try to seek these really big, huge ideals in practice. Um, so to answer the why question, I can take you down this road and journey into Andrew Stuhl's life. And I have to be honest, like I haven't really shared this very much before, not publicly. Uh, I share it with those very, very close to me because it's a story of a lot of pain. Um, and I, I think that's okay in this venue because I firmly believe that the things that matter to us and that bring us meaning and that fill our life with purpose actually come from private pain. And it's in that act of, of facing that and embracing that uh, that we live a life of meaning and we find out what matters to us. So I'm going to take you there. My dad uh, was an alcoholic my entire life um, until 2007 when he went uh, to rehab for a 30-day program. And this was the, some of the hardest things I've ever dealt with in my life. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a rare sight to come home from school or practice or a rehearsal and find him passed out on the couch having been drunk all day. Um, I remember vividly when I was 11 years old, I came down the stairs and he was drunk and beating up my brother. And I called the state police and I was completely scared and had no idea what to do and was thrust into a moment of jarring adulthood that I was calling the police on my dad. Um, this continued for my whole high school experience and I was like very, very nervous to have friends come over because I was mortified about my father and scared about him, intimidated by him. And I remember one time I did invite friends over to my house in, in Maryland in the suburbs, a normal looking house. And my friends came over, we sat on the couch, did a normal thing, watched football on Sunday. And my dad, you know, was in and out of consciousness, had been many drinks in. And my, my friends looked at him, were just making fun of him right in front of me, laughing at him. And I was so scared and so mortified again and tried to hide in the couch and just pretend it wasn't happening. Um, and that was the other really weird thing is in my family, we didn't talk about this. We never had direct conversation really about my dad. I think we were all very scared of him and the abuse that he inflicted on us emotionally and physically. And so I learned to just push that down and repress that and ignore it and learn to live this life where I was not really addressing reality in front of me or like lying, you know, and it, it took me a really, really long time to um, kind of come to terms with this and realize what was going on. Um, I went to, to college and I think that was a big breakthrough because I was away from my parents' house and I was away from my dad. And I could see by meeting new friends that that was not normal, that that was not okay. And that he was responsible for 
the, his actions. I, I took this really big risk in my sophomore year of college. I decided that I was going to confront my dad on this and I was going to make my family confront this too. And my tactic was to write a letter to my dad's mom, who is, you know, my grandma. She's like the matriarch of our family, this Irish Catholic woman, four foot nine, like 110 pounds. <laughs> I'll kick your ass. You know, like that was my grandma. And it felt like the biggest risk in my life. Like, What if I write this and she excommunicates me from the family? Well, I, I wrote the letter and it was this huge outpouring of emotion, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to actually say these things that no one has ever said, even though we've all witnessed what's been going on. We've all been there. And I wrote the letter and I took it to the post office. I sent it out and I immediately felt this weight lift off my chest. I felt my myself feel taller and like felt connected to the ground. I feel connected to my body. And that was a huge, huge moment in my life. And I can talk more about the impact of that letter, but just knowing that I was telling the truth, just knowing that I was right, that the experience around me, the things that I was seeing, those were real. And I didn't have to be gaslit into thinking, no, what you're seeing is not happening or it's normal or it's nothing to talk about, nothing to complain about. Just finally putting my experience down on paper it was the most meaningful thing I'd done, I think, in my life until that point. And did you experience love in that moment in addition to truth, or did that just come later? Well, it's been a long, long journey. So my, I think my grandma was not in the place to hear that. So she wrote me back, and she made excuses for my dad. She said, oh, he's probably really busy at work. Uh, you know, he's probably under a lot of stress. And... I turned to my friend Tim at college and I told him what was going on. And he was like, look, I think you would really, really, really get a lot out of going to an Al-Anon or Alateen group. It's like a support group for children of alcoholics. And that's where I think I experienced the love through recognition from other people saying, you know, Andrew, yes, this is happening to you. You're a good person. You know, it's not your fault. And they said that to me after meeting me for 20 minutes, you know, they didn't have to, um, they could have just, you know, acknowledged, listened to me, but they extended themselves selflessly to support somebody who was struggling. So I think I experienced that love there. Um, yeah, the journey with my dad continued and I eventually found resolution and forgiveness, but it was much, many more years after that. Well, I appreciate your sharing sharing that story with us in this not quite as intimate a setting as we would we would be used to for for having these types of conversations. But I appreciate your willingness to go go to that place and acknowledge some of the origins of that that stuff for sure. Yeah, thank you. So so help us draw the line then from writing that letter and and experiencing that and and then feeling the honest and and unconditional love of a community like uh, like Alanon or Alateen to uh, to this, uh, your sense of living a life of purpose now, and maybe also to the, the sort of content that you've fi filled that out with for us? Yeah, sure. So this might feel like a big stretch, but I promise I'll connect the dots. <laughs> I've always been, thankfully, my, you know, my, my dad is a complex person, and I just described him in one way, but he also 
took us outside a bunch as a kid, as kids, went to the beach, went to the mountains. And I think from those experiences, I learned to really care for the world outside Mm -hmm. and was always that person in my friend group who was not eating as much meat as the next person or, you know, using less water, taking fewer showers, definitely the crunchy granola type. Uh, So I've always kind of been an environmentalist in that way. But it really wasn't until 2018 that I wanted to commit myself to the universal truth of climate justice, right? The fact that while we all, while many of us and communities and cultures around the world burn fossil fuels for our everyday lives, only certain populations feel the climate hazards of that. And that's not right. That's not fair. And it was 2018 when uh, hundreds of young people sat in the office of Nancy Pelosi, the new speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States. And they sat in there and they wouldn't leave until she came to acknowledge that this is not only a problem, but we have solutions ready to go that will make livable futures for everyone, that will correct this imbalance and invest in these frontline communities that have been dealing with climate hazards. They didn't leave, they stayed there, the media came, they sang, they danced, they stomped their feet, they called it a climate emergency. And I just felt my heart racing when I was watching this happen. And I thought, wow, that's exactly how I felt when I wrote that letter to my grandma. They're telling the truth. We've been lied to by these companies, these fossil fuel companies, oil and gas companies, saying it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. It's not as bad as you think. Can you really make the connection between fossil fuel emissions and warming over here, hurricanes over there, typhoons over there? The fossil fuel companies are doing the same thing that my dad was doing to me. And I I know that might sound wild, but it's my experience and how I was making sense of that moment in 2018. Young people standing up, speaking the truth, standing together and calling out this whole experience of being told it's not a problem. That really hit me in my heart. And it felt like, yes, that's the truth that I want to work towards too. And that's how I want to do it is by going right to the people who say they represent us and saying, you can't listen to those liars who are running these companies lying to the American public and taking our money and taking our future. That's not right. So that that's one kind of connection of the dots there between this, my own, my personal trauma with my dad and, and then the kind of resolution and power that comes from speaking the truth. You know, those truth telling moments are so, so important and can be such life changing moments. And then, and then you wade into the work, right? The work of making love a reality or making community or justice a reality, um, on the back end of it. But, uh, but we don't have to have all that figured out in order to say say what's true. Um, and I appreciate that right. coming through in both both of those stories for sure. Yeah, and that's, that's something what I wanted to hit off of when you're trying to connect this metaphor of your father to your work in environmental justice and that letter that you wrote and the response that you got from your grandmother almost in sort of denial you know, and we can certainly connect that those dots as well with maybe the reactions to the dire circumstances that have been presented 
by the present generation who are vouching for environmental justice. Even their calls are also oftentimes met with a degree of denial or a degree of acceptance, but with you know, still being unable to latch on to that. So could you speak on that um, too for a second as to how do you persist on working towards the ultimate goal of climate justice while still understanding that, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, sure. That's a really good point too. And I, I think that's spot on in terms of the weight of other folks denying the existence of the problem comes back to you as the person who's pointing it out. And then how do you carry that, right? Oh, I don't know where it comes from, but I've always felt like it's worth the fight. And I'd rather keep pushing and finding the folks who are ready to accept and and work on it than to give up when someone like my grandma denies what was going on. It definitely hurt to read that letter and it definitely hurts to see you know, politicians and thought leaders shrink in the face of the climate crisis. But for every one of those or two or even 10 of those people, when there's one other person next to me saying, I'm with you, I get like supercharged up from that, automatically refilled to the top of my bucket. Um, I don't know how to explain that. I think it's that sense of being regarded and acknowledged and just again, struggling and being committed in service of that universal love and truth. Um, And I've been really, really fortunate here in Lewisburg to find lots of those people who are ready to work on that. And just like Kurt said, it's not as if we have, I have a blueprint, a magic blueprint that I cooked up and here's the next step we need to take to solve all these problems. It's just being willing to try is such a, a well that I keep coming back to. Um, And honestly, if there are days that are hard for me and I'm about to give in to that disillusionment and about to be over, overwhelmed by those who are denying, it's just that person next to me who has that in them that day and says, no, we can do this. And I can, I can kind of ride their energy. Thematically, you've been mentioning these ideas of truth and communication. Um, and I think that they do apply very broadly and very narrowly at the same time. Like we live in this world now where we're theoretically more connected than ever, but at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of disjointed voices yelling at the same time. And your personal story about trying to, you know, listen to your own voice, your inner truth, it really sticks with me. Could you speak a little bit on on that idea of like communication with your family, your personal life? We live in a in a world of words. You know, I, I didn't make that up. Someone else said that, but we live <laughs> in a world of, of words, right? And so I'm always thinking about that. How can I say something to somebody so they hear me? Um and this actually comes right back to my dad. Uh, and another kind of major moment in my life that helps me understand what matters to me. So my dad died in 2014. Um, He died from prostate cancer. 
So the year after I wrote that letter to my grandmother, my dad called me and said, hey, I have stage four prostate cancer. I, I don't know how long I have left. And sure enough, I mean, uh, the, all the toll that he had taken on his body by drinking every day didn't set himself up well to fight cancer. Um, but thankfully to science and cancer researchers, especially those at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, uh, my dad lived a pretty decent quality of life while fighting this disease from 2007 to 2014. And in that time, he got to meet Ariana, my wife. He got to meet my first child, Everett. And he knew that my daughter, Whitley, was on the way as he came home from the hospital into hospice and eventually passed away. Well, um, that summer, 2014, things weren't looking very good for my dad. He was, had lost all of his hair, lost some control of his bowels. It was difficult, you know, to, to see him in the hospital. Um, and in the back of my mind and in my heart, I started to feel like, what do I say to him now about this history that we really haven't resolved with his alcoholism? Um, and I called my friend Mike, who had the year before lost his dad. And, and he said, look, you can't miss this opportunity to tell him what's on your mind and to try to reconcile this. You do not want to live the rest of your life carrying this what if and carrying any kind of regret. He's like, maybe you just write, write your thoughts down and, and maybe you don't even eventually share those thoughts, but you can write them down. And so I wrote another letter and uh, it turned out to be 10 things I learned from my dad. And I shared that with him. And, and inside that letter, there's one little line where I just said, look, dad, there's a lot of history between you and me that we've never even discussed. And it has to do with your alcoholism. And I said, if you're thinking about that right now, I release you. I release you from that, dad. And I'm going to release myself from it too. And I remember writing that and I'm crying right now thinking about it. And I wrote it at my kitchen table and Ariana was right there and we just, she just held me for a while. I sent it to my dad and he called me and we didn't even say anything. We just cried with each other. I mean, I didn't want to carry that, all that pain for the rest of my life and hold it against him. And he, we could never reconcile it. It felt so good just to put it to rest. I became a, a, a strong person in the interim. I was very happy with my relationships. I did not fall into the addictive behaviors that plagued my dad. I met all the other criteria of success that society would suggest. This was the one thing I really needed to reconcile in the inner drama with myself. And to your point, Jack, it came through communication. It came through just acknowledging it. I had no idea how I was going to resolve it, but I didn't want him to die with this on his heart either. I was, I think that was a little act of love I tried to give to my dad that I love you, dad, for the fallible person you are, and you don't have to carry this beyond your life anymore, at least with me. 
Yeah, what a moment. That's more more than a little a little act of love, Andrew. That's a big a big moment. Appreciate again your willingness to share that with us across these strange computer screens with the squiggly lines on them. Uh, <laughs> I can't say that I've ever you know cried looking at my screen before like this, but uh, you know it's I really appreciate the the intention of this conversation to talk about what matters because so much time in our lives, we're talking about things that really don't matter. And Ariana, like when I first met her, she's just like that. She's like, I don't want to talk about the weather. Let's just start talking. Like just immediately jump into conversation with somebody you don't know about really important stuff. And it feel it feels so much better like to kind of just go for it. So I'm curious, Andrew, in what, what, if anything, has changed in the way you think about the things that matter to you during this, uh, this pandemic season? Yeah, um, I'm kind of thinking on the fly with you about this. Um, That's sort of the point of this question. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'm, I mean, gratitude for um, my health, for sure. People around me who have stayed healthy for the circumstances I was born into, a relative privilege of class and my skin tone has somehow shielded me from a lot of violence and injustice and sets me up to be really safe in these times. Um, So I feel that gratitude. And then the flip side of that coin, the other side of that coin is just anger, you know, that, that those are circumstances that not everyone enjoys and their lives are on the line because of those circumstances and the institutions of inequality that have been built around them. Also, I, I'm filled up by people helping people. Hmm. Um, some of my research is on, is on crisis. And it's so cliche to say, but right, the, the worst times bring out the best in people. And mm-hmm. we're seeing that in my small town in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, too. Right. It's bringing out the worst in people too, but uh, it's bringing out the best in some people. People realizing they actually have a lot, even if they don't think they do. It might be the time that they have. It might be the skill of sewing masks. It might be the ability to set up a Facebook group where other people can exchange things for free. I see these things happening in my, in my community and they're flourishing in our season, in our pandemic season. When you wouldn't really think that, that in a time of death and suffering and recession, somehow there's abundance. I think that's really amazing. Indeed. And I, I agree. And I think I think part of the challenge we all have right now is sort of how to train our focus enough on the, the positive life-giving things, because uh, our patterns are so disrupted. Obviously, our connections are so disrupted. Um, that it becomes easy to get sort of sucked into the pit of despair, right? Um, as we as we contemplate all all that's afoot, but to sort of uh, you know pause for a moment and uh, and appreciate the deeper stuff and the deeper connections and the possibility of help um, and love and truth, sort of winning out in this moment in time is all all really powerful for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think one of my kind of guides in like justice organizing work is George Lakey. And he, he says that unity is energy creating. 
right? When we experience unity or we observe or witness acts of being together in solidarity, that creates energy. And I think that's picking up on what you just said, Kurt, that's what I'm observing in some parts of my community. Um, and I'm not going to lie, like this season, I've felt more anxiety in my life than I ever have. Um, the pandemic season, the the murder of George, George Floyd and the historic uprisings and then violence around that, the election and the kind of continuing contestation of that. I've lost sleep over that. You know, I've felt really like my, my triggers are very, you know, close to the surface when usually I can manage them. Uh, and this is observing that unity and kind of selflessness and community has been something that's given me more resilience in this time. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's also it. Maybe I'm looking for it because I need it right now. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, seeking it out. Right. Yeah. I like that a lot. And, and certainly agree. I've lost, lost more sleep and, and felt more anxiety in this, in this season than, than virtually all others. Uh, it's tough, tough stuff out there for sure. And there's uh, a lot of, a lot of loveliness, uh, to be noticed, uh, you know, in the cracks and on the edges and, uh, as we do the best we can. Coming close to time here. Anything else you want to tell us, Andrew? No, I I did write down some notes um, over here on this little tiny sheet of paper. And the thing I think that was a theme for me, like Jack had been talking about some of the themes that he was hearing. One of the themes is just like the private pain or adversity that we've each faced as individuals. That defines us. But it we are... Mm somewhat in control of how it defines us. And I feel like my story has been facing that adversity. Um, and through that confrontation, transforming it into a source of power and kind of source of my identity of myself and what drives me to stay committed to those universal truths. So I got to think that when you talk with other people about what matters to them, this is going to be a pervasive theme. Um, have you, have you found that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously not, not everyone is as willing to sort of share the depth of, uh, you know, where that comes from. I think probably not, not everyone has, uh, sat with those moments quite so robustly as you have. Um, and so I appreciate that, but, but absolutely. I think, uh, how much learning, how much growing comes from those moments that we try so hard to avoid those moments that, uh, that hurt us, um, and that make us suffer, right. That those are, um, eventually right. The spaces that we grow from the spaces that we learn from and, and, uh, absolutely how we sort of start to define who we are and how we want to be in the world. Yeah. That's the other thing that, especially for people who identify as male in the United States, like we're trained to avoid it, right? That's kind of what we're expected right. to do is to pretend it doesn't happen or it's not happening to us. Um, so that's another kind of hurdle uh, just to be vulnerable and admit that you're having a hard time is like a step in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Even to admit to ourselves that, that there are hard moments, I think is, uh, is a challenge, let alone to kind of narrate them in a public way where we can start to make meaning of them with other people. Um, it's a gift, a gift to find people who, who we can do that with. Um, and, uh, and yeah, definitely runs against cultural norm. I think, I think, uh, similarly there's this, uh, picture 
there's some researchers from Duke described it long ago as uh, the need to be effortlessly perfect, perfect, effortlessly perfect. I can't say that phrase. We're going to have to clean that up <laughs> on the track. Effortless. <laughs> effortlessly perfect, right? Like not only do we have to be doing well, but we have to look good while we're doing it. Um, and I think that hinders so much of our ability to connect with one another, right? Uh, to not be able to, when somebody asks you how you're doing, to not be able to say, I'm really, you know, this week sucks or uh, I'm having some trouble at home or, you know, I'm not not feeling as connected to what I thought I was supposed to be doing while I was here uh, stops us from being able to to do that work together, right? In friendship and community. Um, and so that's a, another big, another big one for sure. Yeah, right on. And, uh, you know, this season as a professor at Bucknell, I feel like students have, uh, opened up in those ways more than I have experienced in other semesters. So I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm mm-hmm. glad that they're leaning into that authenticity and, and vulnerability. Cause like you said, we, we need each other's support right now. Yeah. Shared suffering uh, is a good way to build community. So if that, if that's true, then, then we're going to make it through this thing, right? Cause we are definitely suffering together uh, mm-hmm. in our, in our respective rooms right now. Jack, Spondin, anything else you guys want to get? I have one question. What are your opinions on Zoom classes? <laughs> you know, I've had a, a lot of experience on Zoom. I'm sure you too, Jack. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, my, my full verdict is still out. I'd like to wait till the whole semester ends. Um, it's such a cold space every single time I, I open a Zoom, right? It's muted. People are muted. You can't feel them in there. You can't bear you can barely read facial expressions, body language, all the cues that were evolved as social beings to witness and observe and pay attention to. It feels like I'm wearing gloves and trying to, you know, do something really fine grain with my fingers, right? That said, I feel like um you can use breakout rooms, you can use the chat feature, you can have one-on-one conversation with any almost anyone with an internet connection, uh, which is amazing for like accessibility and um, just talking with people. Um, so I much prefer being in person. Uh, I'm thankful for Zoom because without it, we couldn't do what we're doing at Bucknell in a pandemic season. And uh, I do find that you, you can have a little bit of that connection that we crave right now as we're all keeping each other safe and staying distance from one another. Virtual backgrounds, virtual backgrounds are good too. I like virtual backgrounds. <laughs> I was up at the labyrinth uh, last week on election day. Um, and uh, you often refer to the period of entering toward the center of the labyrinth as a period of receiving. So I was trying to pay attention to what the universe was telling me. And uh, two, two uh, phrases came crystal clear into my mind in, in quick succession. The first was, this really sucks. And the second was, uh, I'm really grateful for it, which is the way I feel about Zoom right now. You know, it sucks. And, uh, and it's certainly a lot better than not being able to see people. Um, and it's exhausting and, uh, and worrisome and all of that sort of stuff. But, but I'm grateful for it. As I am for this conversation, Andrew, I really appreciate your uh, 
honesty, uh, your vulnerability, your thoughtfulness, and your uh, willingness to kind of wed, w uh, thread some of these webs together for us between the, the personal and the political and the seemingly little stuff and the seemingly big stuff and the way that they push and pull with one another. So thanks, thanks so much for your time and uh, honesty and forthrightness and thoughtfulness. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, everybody, for inviting me here and, and talking today. So I'd once again like to thank our guest, Andrew Stuhl, for his honesty and thoughtfulness and forthrightness for sharing with us so deeply from his personal experience, for taking the time to sit down with us and talk about what matters to him and why. Make sure you follow us on your preferred streaming service and stay tuned for more episodes. And thanks for joining us this week on WMTMW. WMTMW is sponsored by the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life at Bucknell University and supported in part by a grant from the Coalition for Life Transformative Education.